you look at the, the curve, you start to see significant economic damage is above two degrees of warming, and it starts to ramp up rapidly above one and a half degrees. Um, now, we we all know you and I know that we're we're not just talking about economic damages; we're talking about loss of life, mass mortality, heat stress, involuntary mass migration, breadbasket failure, water stress, and so on. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Sandy Trust. Sandy is an actuary and head of organizational risk at M&G. Sandy joins me. He's also the co-author of a new report, The Emperor's New Climate Scenarios, Limitations and Assumptions of Commonly Used Climate Change Scenarios in Financial Services. This report was joint published by the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries and the University of Exeter and looks into why it is that financial services are dramatically underestimating the impact of climate change on the economy. Rather than accurately reflecting the potential destruction of our entire global economy at anywhere between three and six degrees of warming, the models used to predict the impact of climate change on financial services sometimes show that a hot house earth could actually be economically positive. This, of course, is total madness. And a reflection of just how separate the economy is from the biosphere in the minds of most people. Sandy joins me to explain how that thinking got baked into the financial services system. The original damage function created by William Nordhaus, which essentially confused climate change with the weather. The models that are still used today. And, crucially, the difference between scientific assessment and risk assessment. With Sandy explaining that risk assessment is used to direct our actions. That if there is a possibility of risk, we mobilize in order to mitigate or avoid. And right now, the risk is so severe that actuaries are joining the scientists in raising the alarm about a devastating future if we do not act. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Sandy, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Rachel, thank you for the invitation. I'm absolutely honoured. Also, also humbled looking at other guests you've had on Planet Critical previously. So thank you very much. Oh, that's very kind of you. My first very broad question for you <laughs> is, why is the world in crisis? <laughs> such a good question such a good question such a big question there's lots of ways we could go with this 
let's get straight into it. So I'm going to put it back to you and the listeners, actually. Imagine you get a call from the president or the prime minister of your country and they say, Rachel, I've had some conflicting advice on climate change. I need your help. I need your help. What's going to happen here? We're at 1.2 degrees of warming today. There's quite a lot of bad stuff happening. What might happen when we get to three degrees of warming? Will it be 2% GDP loss, economic damages of 2% GDP? Or will it be 80% GDP loss, like we lose everything? So help me, what do you think? Is it 2% GDP damages at three degrees of warming? Or is it 80? Do you have a, do you have a thought on that one, Rachel? What's your gut? <laughs> Um, I mean, my gut instinct would be closer to the catastrophic end um, of the loss. 80. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's a question I've put to several rooms of people currently when talking about this report. And they all say 80. OK, everyone gets this is really bad climate emergency. So let's just dig into the two. How do you get to two? Well, what you do is this. You look backwards and you say, what happened previously? when it got a bit hotter and people did a bit less work because it was hot. So that's one of your assumptions. In the future, if it gets hotter, people do more, less work, right? Um, The other thing you do is you say, well, climate change impacts weather. So anybody who works indoors won't be impacted by climate change. So we can exclude 87% of the economy from our analysis yeah this is um yeah. this is nordhaus isn't it william Nord- yes this is yeah. nordhaus top 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 marks top marks you get the first prize <laughs> and he won the nobel prize for it correct because it was such a brilliant piece of work <laughs> now to, to be to be fair to be fair he, he did what you know what we do in risk management we look backwards at what has happened and we we, we use that to project forwards but the difficulty with that approach is by definition you don't capture any risks which haven't yet happened so we're effectively looking backwards Mm. from the deck of the titanic on april 1912 and saying it's been a pretty smooth voyage so far i don't see any problems um and of course when you look at Tipping points, and we'll, we can talk a little bit more about tipping points. Um, there, are, there are many, many significant problems coming, which we've never faced before, and which you have to take into account. Um, so to use that Titanic analogy, and just because the Titanic hasn't yet been sunk by an iceberg, doesn't mean it can't be. Yeah. Um, and so that so so that's intellectually interesting, right? Oh, it came up with a low number for climate, and it's based on some inaccurate assumptions. So what? Well, the so what is if that methodology is being used not just by financial institutions but by central banks and regulators globally to assess the resilience of the global economy and national financial systems to climate change. So you have a deeply, deeply flawed methodology which systemically and by definition underrepresents the risks being used to assess the financial system. So we looked, we looked at the results the financial institutions are publishing on climate change and 
if you look at and most of your listeners will be familiar with the concept of a transition to a low carbon future that limits global warming and a, a failed transition or a hot house scenario in which we trigger climate to meet points it gets hotter and um, there's virtually no difference in their results from those two scenarios so there's no results between transitioning to a sustainable low carbon future versus a hot house earth in terms of like gdp loss when they run this model um yes correct correct there's there's very little difference so we looked at we didn't cherry we didn't cherry pick we looked at a range of major financial institutions this is FTSE 100 entities managing hundreds of billions of dollars of your money pensions this is uh, investment managers collectively advising you know trillions of dollars of pension schemes this is large pension schemes and some institutions incredibly showed the hot house scenario to be economically positive compared to transitioning some of them showed it to be almost the same and some of them to be fair did show a small loss and you kind of ask the question well where did this come from and this came from an organization the network for greening the financial system um, the network for greening the financial system is a group of central banks and regulators and in the first generation first generation of their, their climate scenarios which were picked up really broadly globally by other financial regulators they essentially used that Nordhaus methodology tweaked it a little bit and said economic damages in our house world are six percent gdp damage yeah um, they've since increased it to 20 or maybe 21 percent gdp damage but for me still massively undercooking it now i'm not regulator bashing here without financial regulators very few financial institutions would be running this analysis on climate change but we so we've come a long way we come from not running any analysis on climate change back you know eight years ago when mark carney gave his seminal speech in 2015 on the financial risk of climate change to most major all major financial institutions most institutions now running the tests but of course it's incredibly dangerous if the answer they get is don't worry about this economically so the the, the best case is it's really expensive mathematical exercise no practical value the worst case is people look at these lots and say hey it's not going to be that bad which perhaps would explain um the state reticence around the world to actually implement any meaningful policy changes yeah, I, I think so, right? So climate emergency, the definition of an emergency is, you know, a, a, a perilous situation where you have to take immediate radical action. So in a, in a car speeding towards a cliff, you slam on the brakes. And actually, if the car's not going to stop in time, you might even jump out of a moving vehicle. That's emergency action, right? So climate change, we're, we're not taking that action. And I think this this point on realistic risk assessment is important i don't know if you ever do you ever go for a, a walk in the woods or a park near you mm-hmm. yeah of course um how would you feel if you saw a cat in the in the park i'd feel quite happy quite like cats <laughs> yeah what about if it was a big cat like a tiger 
I would be very confused and rather scared. <laughs> yeah. W- would you even go to the park if you heard news that there was a tiger at the park? <laughs> oh, my little brain was like, maybe. I mean, I want to see a tiger. No, I know. Could I uh, <laughs> maybe get a, get a selfie for the Insta? I was just maybe I could climb a wall or climb a tree and just look at it. No, no, um, no. Of course, I would not do that. That's dumb. So you, you, it's, it's a ridiculous example, but the point I'm making is that risk assessment is incredibly important because it, it drives the action you take. It, if it was a, a tiger in the park, you, maybe you would take the park. You'd be pretty bloody careful. <laughs> um, so, and that's the point we're making with this this report: is that climate change isn't a tiger. It's a it's a saber toothed tiger, and it's it's about to maul us. Um, and and so that needs to drive radical action. And my my uh, I, I hope one of the things that comes from this this report is better acknowledgement of the risks. And in particular, something we propose later in the report is actually um, trying to uh, link the science, the language of the scientists around tipping points and existential risk and pushing humanity out of the ecological niche in which we've adapted and threats to the food system and the water system for existential emergency action um, to economic damage. Because if the models are saying it's not going to be that bad economically, well, that's a problem because as you know, as you well know, the economic agenda is massive for politicians. You you could say it's going to go back to a slightly bigger answer to your first question that that's that's the deal today. You know, we citizens do what we do and live in society on the basis that there will be economic growth and quality of life will improve, and that's how politicians get their gig. Um, so that's that's so so linking this threat to a very significant risk to that deal I think is actually an incredibly important message. Mm -hmm. Absolutely I would completely agree and it's funny that there seems to be a um, how do I put this there seems to be an evolution in kind of the the people who are raising the alarm around climate change and then those being brought in to be taken seriously because I think initially when it was scientists people were taking that very seriously Um, and then as scientists kept warning that I think there's kind of been almost an assumption from the government that they can just probably can actually probably ignore scientists you know what do what what do they know they're very niche thinkers but there's something about actuaries and accountants I feel that really hold a lot of weight in society like you lot coming out and saying we have a big problem I hope that that will make people listen more yeah I hope so too and it's it's um you know definitely they're actually saying what are we doing? Why are we looking at climate change? We do pensions, we do insurance. So just to remind people what actuaries do, um, we're the kind of financial world boffins that often sit in the back of insurance companies and pension schemes. And it's our job to make sure the insurance company doesn't fail. So you get paid out on your home insurance, on your car insurance, on other types of insurance. Um, And it's also our job to make sure that pensions have enough money so that you will receive your pension mm-hmm. often 10 20 30 40 50 years from when you're paying into it right so actually naturally think probabilistically think long term think risk 
uh, and we're, we're trained to think about the uncertainties and limitations of models, to think about how complex combinations of risks, and to think about those over a period of several decades. And we also have a pretty good understanding of the financial system. So actuaries, I think, have a really important contribution to, to make here. Mm. Um, and I... Uh, got into this back in 2016 when I volunteered for the actual profession, um, and one of my one of my colleagues, a guy, a guy called Nico Aspinall, um, a lady called Louise Pryor, said, "You have to read this report." Um, okay, very interesting. And I read this report, and this was the first global climate change risk assessment. So, not not science. I'm going to be quite careful. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about this in a second. But risk. What's the worst that could happen? Um, and the British government actually led this under a fantastic climate scientist, Sir David King. Um, and we sent diplomats to India and we sent diplomats to China and we worked with the governments and the military around what's the worst that could happen here. And anecdotally, the thing that got the Indians, Indians was Bangladesh moving in as sea levels rose. And the thing that got the Chinese was the rice crop failing because the rice crops were vulnerable to heat stress. And as you get more heat spikes, you, you have that uh, risk. Um, so realistic risk assessment is incredibly important. Um, and that, that report really got me. I looked at it as an actuary and excuse my French, had young kids at the time, two and four, went, oh, fuck, mm. we're in the shit here. Um, uh, and became very motivated to work on it. But that that's not so much the point. The point is realistic risk assessment is really important. And in 2016, it was 2015 or 2016, that report was published. And they said, this is incredibly important. The governments of the world need to be doing this realistic risk assessment. Um, and I guess how many global climate risk assessment reports of that nature have been published since? None. Correct. <laughs> none. None. I'll see if I've got my, you know, I don't know if you've had a look at Simon Sharp's Five Times Faster. Right. So there's a, a fantastic YouTube, um, a YouTuber picked up picked up the report and published uh, a fantastic 15 minute on it, which we can link to. He also talks about Simon's book, uh, and Simon talks about the difference between science and risk. And this is perhaps one of the things we've learned from doing these reports and something I think is is incredibly important for people to understand. Um, first of all, hats off to climate scientists. Mm-hmm. I have the deepest respect for climate scientists, um, not just what they do, their depth of knowledge, but also their resilience. I've mm-hmm. um, had the, the great good fortune and honour to meet with and talk to and talk with, work with a, a, a couple, um, Tim Lenton Exters, David King, uh, some work with Emily Shukra at Cambridge. Um, and my God, how do they keep going? Mm, I know. <laughs> how do they keep going, right? And the IPCC is this collection of incredible scientists. Um, but two important things about science. One, the IPCC is a consensus-driven machine. So consensus doesn't exactly mean, but it kind of does mean averaging. So if you come to me and say, I need to cross this river, is it safe? The IPCC, I'm, you know, I'm being a bit glib here, right? But to make a point, the IPCC will come back to you and say, Rachel, the average depth of the river is half a metre. You're safe to cross. 
you don't care about the average depth of the river, I want to know you? the deepest point in the river. Correct. Correct. And you want to know how uncertain that estimate is. Mm-hmm. So to illustrate this with climate, one of the most critical assumptions is that this assumption, we're going to get a little bit geeky here, equilibrium climate sensitivity. Okay. Equilibrium climate sensitivity came, came up with in the 70s. And this was how much will the planet warm if we double greenhouse gases? So not immediately, but once it reaches a state of equilibrium, dynamic equilibrium, when we double greenhouse gases, you increase greenhouse gases, that causes the Earth to retain more energy than it emits. We could say that the, scientifically, the Earth is in a state of energy imbalance, right? So if we double greenhouse gases, what will it eventually go up to? The answer is three, three degrees, right? Um, this is the average, okay? This is the, the half a metre in the river is three degrees. But the IPCC themselves say we cannot rule out it might be more than five. Wow. That's a big difference, isn't it? Yeah. That's, a, that's, excuse me, that's a freaking massive difference. But that is buried on like page 200 of AR6, whatever it is, mm. right? Um, actuaries would be saying we cannot rule out it could be more than five. We need to be extremely bloody careful here until we have ruled that out, mm. okay? And there's lots of uncertainty around this. So, so that consensus process is really dangerous because it hides the risks and the tail risks. Um, the other bit that's really dangerous is what I'm going to call scientific reticence. Now, again, I have massive respect for science. You can see in my bookshelves several science books and Stephen Hawkins, all that kind of stuff. Like, massive respect. Um, but, but scientists think differently from risk managers for, for good reason. The good reason you don't publish in science until you're quite confident, right? So scientists wouldn't say there's an iceberg until they can taste it and touch it and lick it and measure it, all that kind of stuff. So to be conservative in science is exactly the opposite of being conservative in risk. When you say there might be a risk, what would the impact be? If it's too high, we need to take action. We need to take action, right? Um, so here's, here's, I'm going to quote, I'm going to quote from a recent email from a top climate scientist on an incredibly important paper on, on that topic of how much warming can we expect. And um, he had suggested the concluding words of the title of his paper were, two degrees of global warming is highly dangerous. And um, the journal that's publishing his paper intervened and said they were not going to publish that paper unless the words were changed from global warming is highly dangerous, two degrees of global warming is highly dangerous, to two degrees of global warming could be dangerous. Mm. So that is that is scientific reticence. Mm. How dangerous is that? Mm. Totally. So that's so that's where you need the scientists to work with the risk managers or actuaries. I think this is, that it's critical that we work together. And in the twenty I think it was 2015 report as David King did. We did work, scientists and actuaries did work together, but critically with um, the military, with governments to not just put the science and the risk mindsets together and think about tail events, but also think about impacts to the systems which are essential to our civilization, food, um, water, 
those sorts of things, right? Um, and so about, just to talk a little bit about why we did this report, um, I, I say about 18 months ago, we met Sir David Kitten, a colleague, Oliver Pettis, met him, we had a meeting, and we said, well, why don't we do a paper? Why don't we do a paper? Um, so we did a paper, first paper on tipping points, climate emergency tipping the odds in our favour, where we explored both the kind of negative um, physical risk tipping points, the Greenland ice sheet, ocean current circulation, dieback of the Amazon and so on. There are maybe 16 or so of these Earth system tipping points. Um, and it's, it's probably people might go, oh, what's a tipping point? I'm not quite sure about tipping point. Everyone is really familiar with tipping points because everyone has knocked over a glass of water or a pint or a glass of milk. And things are stable until they become less stable. I'm not actually going to pour water in my lap <laughs> in front of you, hopefully. And the point is, once it's built, it's difficult to put it back into the, sta the stable state it was in previously. It takes much more energy, much more effort, maybe practically impossible if the glass rolls off the table and smashes. So if you think about the Greenland ice sheet, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of snow built the ice sheet up. It may melt, may already be close to irreversible melt. We don't just have to go back to pre-industrial temperatures. We probably have to go back to much colder temperatures to rebuild that, that ice sheet and put sea level back down. So tipping points are incredibly important, um, tend to be one way incredibly impactful. Um, and uh, there was not great awareness of tipping points. The first paper was on tipping points, uh, just as there are negative physical risk tipping points so there are positive socioeconomic tipping points if you think about the classic s-curve of technology disruption the energy transition is a technology disruption if you think non-linearly um then actually we're, we're already on s-curves we need to be to hit net zero with some renewable technology so so first of all it's on tipping points with Steve King um, and that was one of the big points he made in this forward is that science and risk think differently and have to work together um, and that led to the report we've been talking about the Empress New Climate Scenarios mm. um, which which was really about this inadequacy of uh, first generation climate scenarios uh, the risks of that and, and what we could do to re rectify that going forward. Excellent. I think let's get into it then. So what were the top findings from the report? Commonly used climate change models in financial services are underestimating risk. We focused on the hot house scenario. We asked the question, why do these results not make sense. The results we talked about earlier, which are showing the economic impact of a hot house scenario to be completely equivalent to um, uh, a transition to limiting climate change. Um, one thing is the damage function, that Nord House damage function, where you essentially say what happened when it got a bit warmer, a bit warmer um, and extrapolate that forwards. It's, it's a bit mathematical, but depending on the shape of the, uh, the shape of the curve, you use the mathematical equation used to extrapolate forward. You either get 
catastrophic damages or you never get damages. So Nordhaus uses what's called a quadratic function. So that's how that's a curve and it goes up gradually. Um, and depending on how you parameterize it, you get to for six percent GDP damage at three three degrees of warming. So that damage function is incredibly important. Um, other issues um a thing underpinning a lot of climate modeling is a is a, a thing called an equilibrium model which is an economic model uh, of basically global supply and demand and how things might happen um uh, depending on whether you use an equilibrium model or a non-equilibrium model which is a model which is slightly more representative of reality without getting into too much technical detail um either an equilibrium model will always show the transition to be gdp negative a cost a non-equilibrium model will always show the transition to be gdp positive so just depending on your choice of model a very different answer um so that was the second finding that we really have to go from talking about the cost of transitioning to talking about investing in our future mm. last i heard when you build something that is an asset that creates value that's an investment not a cost mm. um, and of course that language is being weaponized and we're seeing the creation of a wedge issue around you know the cost the cost of transition um but probably around the uk election next year for example um and hang on a minute hang on a minute you're saying well how can the transition always be a cost that kind of doesn't really make sense what's going on here well, what's going on is that all the climate scenario analysis is run from a baseline of climate change isn't happening and the energy transition isn't happening. So if your base case... <laughs> right, right. So if your base case, your base case is, I'm running my models as if climate change isn't happening at fiscal risk. And let's, let's not forget the physical risk is never very material in these models. Mm. Yeah. And the energy transition isn't happening. That's how you always get a negative answer. Pick the energy transition, limit global warming, get a negative answer. Pick oh, as well, get a negative answer. So we're running all our analysis against a fictional baseline that doesn't exist. Hold up. How? How is that possible that that's the baseline being used? Ah, yeah. How is that possible? Because that's how the global financial system works. If I'm a bank and I'm producing my balance sheet, then I produce my balance sheet on... You know, effectively best estimate assumptions those best estimate assumptions all the modeling i'm doing is telling me climate change isn't very material so so our global financial system effectively isn't yet accounting for climate change you know the accounts the valuations of assets the accounts of insurance companies and banks and oil companies and other, other entities and um, if, if the models you're using are not giving you material results for the impact of this stuff, then you don't need to send it into your accounts. So the, the base case, and I, I, you know, without being like an accounting expert, the base case I would suggest that we're running our economy on today is climate change is a bit of a nothing burger. And so then you do the modeling 
from that base case and it always shows negative. I feel like, hang on, I, I just... I feel like I still don't get it though, but why, but why is... So the baseline is because that's not already baked into the system? It feels like a chicken and an egg thing. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's not baked into the system. Yeah, so it, well, let's, let's rewind tw- 20, 20 years. We didn't have, we knew climate change was a thing, but we didn't do climate change stress testing. We didn't have these models. So you run your accounts and your valuation of your assets and liabilities as if climate change doesn't exist because you, you don't have anything that tells you it's going to be material enough to make an impact. Um, and these are, you know, hugely complicated models and data sets and accounting methodologies and the rest of it. And that's that's how an insurance company, for example, reports its profits. And you roll on another year, another year. Um, 2015 comes along. Mark County says climate change could could be a risk, financial risk. We should do something about it. 2017, TCFD says. Um, we need to do strip scenario testing of climate change um, and you you roll forward another few years and you've built the mathematical models to um, test the impacts that we've talked about but, but that doesn't mean that they're embedded into asset valuation, it doesn't mean it's embedded into your capital model, it doesn't mean it's embedded into your solvency model, because climate change is still a risk that could happen uh-huh. in financial modelling land, yeah? Not a thing which you have which priced in. Happening. Oh, okay, so it's that the system itself doesn't have that baked into all of the other models that it's using, and then it comes along and introduces this, um, you know, vaguely climate function damage function Nordhaus nonsense and it doesn't come out with anything close to this yeah so if 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 you're let's say you're a a pension scheme you have a bunch a big a big pot of capital 500 500 billion or something and you've got a lot of people that you need to pay pensions to in the future and um so what do you think about you think about what's going to happen economically how much money i need to put in today how much money i can afford to pay people how long those people are going to live because i need to keep paying them until they they die what happens to interest rates because that really impacts um that really impacts how much you know i need to pay them in the future blah 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 um climate change doesn't yet enter that Mm -hmm. equation Mm -hmm. and Part of the, there are there are two reasons I think this. Um, one, the thing we've talked about, the models are giving very small answers. So if it's very small and quite a long way in the future, it's kind of immaterial. So you wouldn't include it. The other reason I think is that these have been positioned as exploratory scenarios. So what could happen? We we could transition and limit global warming, or we could not and have a hothouse world and variations on that theme um relatively few institutions have actually thought about what's i mean i'm being some have right but broadly speaking relatively few institutions have thought about what is likely to happen and what the impacts could could be and starting to bake that into uh, um into valuations into uh, um, uh, accounting and all that kind of stuff um, and I would, I would also say it's really 
difficult because it's quite it's quite easy um, to say, all right, if we have a hot house world and multiple climate tipping points and sea level rise and storms and multiple breadbasket failures and food crises and heat stress and glaciers melting, we, we can see that at a certain, some temperature, things are going to go off a cliff, like three, three degrees warming, four, five, six you know, pick a temperature at some point, it'll be too much, right? Um, what's really difficult, though, is to say, so what's the impact on a specific company? If I'm a bank, I'm lending to, if I'm an asset manager that I'm investing in, if I'm an insurance company that I'm insuring. So it's really, you know, we, we, we can say, you know, um, if uh, sea level, if, if Vietnam is inundated at high tide by 2050, as some scientists think is is possible that Vietnam will will move before 2050 or parts of Vietnam and other places. What's really difficult though is to say, and so what's the specific impact of that that sort of risk in the future on companies that I hold today? And actually, uh, are those risks going to materialise in the next 12 months or the next three years or the next 10 years? Because if they're not, then do I actually need to be accounted for them today? So I'm not. Um, yes, yes, it's ridiculous, mm. but it's also valid. Mm, okay, I see, I see. But it's this thing about you know the financial system working on such short time frames. This is something that comes up a lot when I speak to people. Like this, the obsession with quarterly reports. And like, it's it's going to be the death of us all. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so we've done something amazing in, uh, with the financial system, um, and my 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 take on my take on it is this: so, um, you know, post post World War Two, focus on prosperity. We've just had a big war that was dreadful. There's lots of poverty. Focus on prosperity. How do we grow prosperity? We grow prosperity by growing wealth and GDP. And actually, G- GDP is quite a good proxy for prosperity. It's not perfect. We all know that. GDP was never meant to be a proxy for prosperity. But that's become the heuristic, the shortcut. GDP, prosperity. Not good at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, is it? It's not good at no. all. No. Again, like the climate modelling, there are some fatal flaws. Mm. Um, and... In financial services, you need financial services and capital to support GDP growth. You need insurance to underwrite risk and all that kind of stuff. So financial services provides this, uh, should provide this incredible service to society of providing capital to get stuff done, underwriting risk, allowing through pensions people to magically transport money into their future and have a better future, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So financial services really underpins, uh, should serve society and underpins growth. Um, and uh, neoliberalism uh, in particular, free market economics, that's kind of distilled into the profit is good. And you will hear language, you may have heard language from other guests talking about the difference between financial services and the real economy mm-hmm. as if they're disconnected. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're disconnecting the impact of the, the capital we provide we provide from the capital itself so financial services kind of absolving itself of any responsibility for the impact of the activities it is enabling um and 
Um, so, so that's 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 part of the problem. There. And in fact, if if you take it one step further, we've managed to disconnect money from real world impact, and we've also, as I'm sure other guests have talked about, forgotten that the economy rests on society and the society rests on the biosphere. Mm. So we've disconnected human economic activity. Um, from the, the the construct in which we exist, um, and that's obviously a dangerous thing to do because it means we have forgotten. Uh, we well, it, it means we we don't we don't recognise or value the raw materials that are input to our society: uh, iron, sand, uh, oil, etc. Um, but also we don't recognise the life the damage we're doing to the life support systems that literally give us the air we need to breathe the water we need to drink and the food we need to eat so um and if you know you don't have to be an astronaut to know that mucking with your life support system is a is a a pretty bad plan so sorry that was a bit of a a classic soapbox rant there but maybe it helps to explain why financial services is is quite disconnected from this. That's really good, Sandy. A lot of people come on the show and talk about the economy being disconnected to the biosphere, but I like adding in that layer of it being disconnected from society because it's true. When I think of financial services, I don't think of it serving society in any way. I don't think of it serving me. I think of it serving people in the city who use it to generate, you know, a huge amount of wealth for one another, essentially. Yeah, which is... Yeah, so we've, it's clearly kind of, yeah, the, the perception, perhaps the reality, be that it's kind of slightly forgotten its purpose. There is a there is a, a transactional, functional purpose of financial services, as I said, providing credit, enabling people to make payments, providing insurance, providing pensions. But for me, there's a much bigger picture purpose. Financial services really should serve society. Um, that, but um, I had a. But I, th- I think this, and rightly, maybe, maybe if we go back to climate, mm-hmm. COP26 was probably the, 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 the high tide on financial services. You need to rescue us here. Financial services, you need to capitalise net zero financial services. Now, financial services can do a lot and we can provide capital, but we're, we're, not the, uh, we're not the arbiters of what we should be financing and could be financing. That society, that's the politicians. They set regulation. It's uh, you know we, for example, today we we can finance oil and gas, but we can't finance terrorism. You can't if you're a terrorist organisation. You can't raise money in the global debt markets, right? So society sets the guardrails for the economy. Politicians set the guardrails for the economy, um, and that's really going right back to Adam Smith, in, invisible. Do you know how much? The, the phrase invisible hand mm. appeared only once in Adam Smith's writing and he was really really clear that moral sentiments needed to guide the invisible hand so we've taken it we've, we've, we've let it go just too far in the direction of free market and I had a fantastic phrase uh, the other day I think it's attributed to Kim Stanley Robinson the invisible hand never picks up the tab <laughs> ain't that the truth well nice one Kim I think that thing of, you know, it's on governments to regulate. Um, with everything that I'm learning about how all of these pieces are interconnected, I'm sure somebody would come back and say, well, 
talking about regulation as if that's something that governments kind of intrinsically make decisions about without the impact of lobbyists, which come from these big industries, finance industries, ag industries, energy industries. Um, and then the fact as well that ICSID exists, the international, you know, the investor state settlement dispute. So this place where corporations can take a national governments to court to sue them for loss of profits for when they change their um, policies, which happens very often when there's a change of government from one wing to the next. Like everybody just seems tied up in this sort of monster that we've created. And ironically enough, the financial services being relatively free because they are beholden to their own free market now there seems to be a push of kind of looking to this industry that I think a lot of us look upon as morally bankrupt and saying, will you please have the morals to do something about it um, and to make the changes that need to happen? Because we cannot expect them to come from government because they're all, they're too tied up. Yeah, I mean, there you have it. Beautifully articulated. It's, it's really difficult. So we've, we've taken... Um, Pro, pro GDP and, and profit have almost become kind of interlinked mm. in, in a kind of societal belief about what is good. Mm. Uh, clearly, in the states in particular, that kind of free market cap- capitalism has been really driven. Um, Mark Carney actually describes it really well in his his book Values. Uh, the, a lot of US corporations are registered in Delaware and the I think the first case was back in 1960 Dodge versus Ford when Henry Ford wanted to reinvest his profits in the company and his shareholders challenged him and that that's been taken further and further I'm just quoting and in 2015 Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court ruled that directors must make stockholder welfare their sole end mm-hmm. So, yeah, you, you, you have legal judgments, societal beliefs, uh, a generation of business leaders who've gone through business school learning this Milton Friedman doctrine, free market capitalism, um, a belief that the economy sits separate from the biosphere, all that kind of stuff. So that's why I think um, this realistic risk assessment is really important and by realistic yes i do mean catastrophic so pick a temperature pick a temperature three four five six degrees at which we lose everything or close to everything actually the point isn't really you can you know a portion of humanity survive at four degrees of Celsius. The point is, and we and we can argue all day about whether it's three, four, five, or six, and whether we lose 100% or 90% or 80%. The point more is that if you look at the, the curve, you start to see significant economic damages above two degrees of warming, and it starts to ramp up rapidly above one and a half degrees. Um, now, we, we all know, you and I know that we're... We're not just talking about economic damages. We're talking about loss of life, mass mortality, heat stress, involuntary mass migration, breadbasket failure, water stress, and so on. Uh, but my belief is, unless and until we link those risks which are talked about to uh, uh, a candid, realistic economic damage estimate and are able to show that to policymakers, it might be difficult to, to, to really enact policies that treat this as the emergency it is. 
Yes, possibly. I, that's generous of you, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Because, I mean, the information's out there. They could find it. But but sure, I mean, let's let's hope. So just just to kind of say it really, really clearly. So what we are looking at is we are now looking at between three to six degrees of warming if we continue as we are. And the economic damages of that could be anything from 50% loss of global, global GDP to... Yes, it's, it's difficult to be precise, but uh, what we did, uh, what we did, what we did, um, if you look right at the back, right at the back of the report, we talked about the way forward. We, talk, we talked about the way that climate risks can you know, cascade, so global warming is going to cascade into, you know, more sea level rise, more extreme impact, extreme weather events, all that kind of stuff, more... Um, disease, all that kind of stuff, and then you can rapidly see that uh, that is then going to start to impact socio-economic systems, uh, perhaps geopolitical tension, all that kind of stuff, um, and that's that's going to impact the economy as we start to get food, water, and fuel shortages. So we we well, I should say we uh, with Prof- Professor Steve Keen, carbon tracker, uh, did some analysis where we said, well, rather than working forwards from a past which is not representative of the future let's work backwards from ruin and that sounds really dramatic doesn't it working backwards from ruin but that's that's why ships have lifeboats um and in fact it's probably important to say we've what we've done carefully and consistently is to use well established actuarial principles which we use to run global insurance and pensions markets to run this analysis and one of those principles is reverse stress testing which is a fancy name for saying work backwards for ruin so if can i can i share my screen oh yes you can i believe oh okay so this this is the, the picture we drew um, and this this is. Uh, Can you also explain it for people who are listening just on audio? Yes, yeah. This this is the picture tree. So what you'll what you'll see is some classic S curves on the screen, um, and the y axis is percentage damage, percentage loss of GDP. So 100% at the top, zero at the bottom. So today one. 1.2 degrees of warming, we have less than 1% GDP damage due to, due to global warming, but, but ratcheting up. Um, and temperature is the x-axis, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So um, what, what you'll see is some S-curves that go up from a temperature of 1 today up to 3, 4, 5, and go up to 100% GDP damage at 3, 4, 5. Now, again, the point isn't so much when do we lose everything? Could some people survive? The point the point is, as you'll see, the losses, depending on how you fit the curve, how you parameterize the curve, start to ratchet up quite swiftly from two degrees mm. to three degrees. And actually by the time you get to three degrees, you're somewhere between forty to kind of eighty percent GDP damage, uh, depending on your rate of warming. So um that's kind of the big highlight there. At what point do we expect 50% GDP destruction somewhere between 2070 and 2090? Now, even despite the fact that GDP is not a great measure, that is still a very frightening statement. If if we don't, if we 
don't change course, we get to those temperatures. Um, and yeah, absolutely, that's a very frightening statement because you don't have to think too much to start to imagine what sort, what sort of events in terms of food stress, water stress, heat stress, sea level rise, etc., would lead to that scale mm-hmm. of damages, mm-hmm. um, whether it's recoverable. Mm-hmm. The thing which feeds into that is the equilibrium climate sensitivity piece I talked about. How much and how quickly do we expect the planet to warm? That's the sort of $64,000 question here, isn't it? Um, and that's the next the next paper we're doing, Climate Scorpion, the sting is in the tail. Um, and Climate Scorpion, the sting is, is in the tail. What we're talking about there is the, the, the tail of the distribution. If you imagine that classic kind of bell curve, distrib- bell curve distribution, the IPCC say equilibrium climate sensitivity is three. Oh, fantastic. That's the average. So yeah. back to our river analogy, what are the tails of this? Plus the risk of tipping points as we go above one and a half degrees. So really the question is, how much warming are we committed to? What are the risks of that warming? And therefore, how much how, how much more rapidly do we need to take action? Yeah. And I, and I, and I, and I guess to reiterate that point, that, that same shape, the S-curve also gives you hope that we can really accelerate action because we have a lot of the solutions we need to decarbonise and policy supercharges the rate of adoption. If you look at EV adoption in Norway, offshore wind in Britain, if you look at the impact of the IRA in America in terms of spending, policy sets the guardrails along which capital flows and, and policy can can supercharge this. And it's my belief that we we have to really get this message up to policymakers to, to supercharge the, the capital and the solutions. Have you had any uptake from policymakers, this report? Not yet, but we're, we're starting to knock on the door. So we've met all the financial regulators who are, you know, without you know, uh, thinking about what their appropriate response is. We've had some really constructive meetings with financial regulators. Um, and I, I think next step is, or an important step is to, to go up to the policymakers. Good luck. Um, anyone listening? Thank you. If anybody has any keys to open those doors, please don't hesitate <laughs> to reach out to Sandy. Yes. Yeah, get in touch. Get in touch. <laughs> Sandy, this is so interesting. Thank you so much. And it was so clear as well. Um, I really appreciate how brilliantly um, you guided us through that. Thank you. Well, no, no, thank you. Thank you, Rachel. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for featuring it. I'll, I'll send you the links to the, the report on YouTube. And yeah, um, those with policy connections, mm-hmm. please get in touch. Thank you so much. Listen, my final question for you before I let you go is, who would you like to platform? <gasps> Such a good question. Mm. Um, so we we opened, we spoke earlier about uh, are people still listening to the scientists and it's a little bit of the, the boy who cried wolf and that kind of stuff. So I'll, I'll tell you who people do listen to and disproportionately so is sports people. Sports people have a disproportionate reach and influence. They're, they're actually just starting to 
activate on climate change. So when I first got into climate change, relatively recently, but, but about eight years ago, it was much, much less topical. And I was kind of thinking, how do we get people interested in this? I've done some work in education and financial education. A particularly successful educational initiative was to let kids pick books on topics they're interested in. So the football kids pick football books, the horsey kids pick horse books, whatever. And it, it really boosted reading age attainment by, I think, like 18 months, like a huge amount. Obviously, right. right. So, well... It, it, it's the classic, you know, the, the, the most ardent protectors of fish are the fishermen. Mm. So how could we get people uh, interested in climate change? And I, I noticed a charity in the US, Protect Our Winters, and it was started by a professional snowboarder, Jeremy Jones, who was going up to Alaska and really noticing the impacts of climate change much, much earlier than most people. And he thought, well, if the people who love winter sports aren't going to protect winter who who is so um about six seven years ago i started the uk branch to protect our winters uk so i would really like to platform lauren mccallum who is the general manager of protect our winters uk and we're now working in the uk uh, with about 40 or 50 outdoor brands um working in uh, cycling climbing um snow sports and there's a, a really passionate and massive outdoor community in britain and we really want to activate that community particularly around election time to send a really strong message to policymakers about how much the public uh, know about this and care about this so i'd really like to champion and um, platform protect our uk and lauren mccallum specifically excellent strategy sandy wonderful listen i thank you again it was such a delight speaking with you no thank you rachel it's been a real a real pleasure thank you, thank you. if you want to learn more i've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview if you liked this episode leave a review and share it far and wide if you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.